0: Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit Contrast.Church. Oh, H. Guys, I slept. I didn't watch the whole game, I'll be honest. <laughs> We have a newborn, so it's our life now. Uh, our talented Nick Bier made that video. Uh, and it's also his second anniversary working here. So we love you, Nick. If you ever need any video animation, Nick is your guy. He is amazing. We're proud to have you. Um, also, uh, a lot of anniversaries. Also, is my wife and I's fifth anniversary on Friday. So that was amazing. Yes, Five years. Um, and uh, we ate the pearl, and it was amazing. So I'm just giving a bunch of recommendations here, I guess, today. We are in Matthew, week 47. If you're new with us, that's a long time. Um, I I would say, like, go back and listen to them all, but that is, like, hours. So I don't know. At this point, maybe just you're good where you are and just keep keep chugging along. Uh, We are in part five of Matthew, one of seven, and uh, we've been going through Matthew at a beautiful pace, and we've been just going through every verse in Matthew, and just talking about it and uh, really kind of just building upon a beauty of context and uh, learning about Matthew, the author, and why he's writing certain things and what it means in our life. Um, there's a lot of value and, and beauty and immense just um, truth in just like opening the Bible and reading it, right? But there's, there's so much more that we can pull out of it that we learn through the context, through passages before and after. And today is a specific instance of that. So if you're in your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew 14. I know uh, Allison just read that. Um, But if you need a Bible, we have some in the back. You can always use your phone, but if you want a hard copy, uh, Jerry would love to give you one. You can steal it and take it home, even. Um, But we're going to read out of the NET version. And uh, to start part five, we're talking about a death, which is a little bit morbid. But there's a reason for that. And uh, to give you a bit of a backstory, if this is your first week or you've been like, I've been to like 10 of 47, uh, I want to just give you the quickest uh, just kind of overview of where, we, where we've been going. So the first part of Matthew, when you, when you open it right up, we, did, we spent five weeks in the origins of Jesus. And it's fascinating because Jesus has a pretty wild, uh, even traumatic upbringing as he's born into the world. And for those of you who didn't know that Jesus is technically not his name. That's the English version that we, we call him. But his original name was the Hebrew root word Yehoshua which, or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, similar to Joshua as we have Joshua in the English. And Yahweh saves was what his name was, and that was what he was to be called. And any Jew at the time would know that, that, that God, in the Old Testament we call God the Father, was Yahweh. That was one of the names that they used to describe him. And so ironic that Yahweh, the God the Father, has a son that is named Yahweh saves. So Yahweh, Yahweh saves. And uh, the idea of that was just reminding the Israelites and the Jews that, that God had a plan, that he was not giving up on the Israelites. He's not giving up on the entire world because we know that Jesus is for all people. And he names him Yahweh saves, and he is to be the Savior of all people. And not only that, but we know him also as Emmanuel, which it means God with us, that, that Jesus is not just a God floating around on earth and never takes on the understanding of the human life, but that he is fully human and fully God, that he experiences the emotions, the pain, the suffering, and the joy and the happiness of humanity, that he steps into the very muck and mire that we are enduring and living in so that he might better understand us and love us well. And so that's the beginning of Matthew, and Matthew, when he writes that, wants us to know that, because Matthew will use that throughout this entire book, or the account, as we call it, the account of, uh, by Matthew. If you can remember back at the beginning, Matthew's a tax collector, he was Jewish, And uh, a tax collector was this weird rebel of the Jews because they worked for Rome at the time. And so he has a really unique perspective. And what he's doing is he is trying to compel Jews, a couple decades later after Jesus dies, resurrects, uh, and ascends to heaven, he's trying to compel Jews to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God with us, that he is Yahweh saves. And he's doing that through a bunch of different ways that we read throughout Matthew. But what I love most about it is he really just puts Jesus on a pedestal, and he just kind of spins him around, and he just lets you see every angle of Jesus, and then the, the reader or the listener gets to look at this view of Jesus and just be like, isn't that amazing? And Matthew does a very cool thing to the Jewish people, and, he, and he, I'm splitting it, and he basically splits Matthew into five main um, parts, five main teachings And if you're wondering, you're like, well, I haven't read that. It's just 28 chapters. We have oversimplified it to passages and verse numbers and chapters. But Matthew essentially had an intro. He had five parts, and that was to model the five books that all the Jewish people would remember, the Torah, to kind of show, like, hey, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament, and then the conclusion, which is our passion and Easter story. And so we broke them into each five parts. So part two was the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Hills. Spent 16 weeks there and learned about an alternate way of living that honestly is quite impossible to any of us. And that's kind of the point, because Jesus lived it, and he wants us to, uh, through his spirit, embody the same teachings. And so if you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, it's beautiful and it's phenomenal, and it is so counterintuitive to the way that the world lives today. And then in part three, we spent 12 weeks fleshing out what that looks like as a reality. And what that means is his teaching became a reality in people's lives. The sick were healed... The uh, spiritually oppressed, the demons were cast out of people. The, the people found freedom in Christ. And, and Jesus did this to the downtrodden and the sick and the hurting. And he's just fulfilling what, what the people have been waiting for. And then our last part before we took a break for the summer was part four, which is the opinions of the king. And that's just how when, you, when Jesus comes onto the scene and starts to bring in this kingdom, there's so many different opinions on what it is. is. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is Jesus a prophet? Is he a liar? Is he the Messiah truly? And everybody's giving their different opinions. The religious leaders have not so good opinions. Uh, a lot of the common people might believe in him, but a lot of them were just using him, right? Like for his, for his powers. He's kind of like a genie. And then Rome, the, the higher powers didn't really know what to think of him up until this point. And this is part five. It's finally bringing us to that point where all of a sudden Rome and the government and the governing authorities are starting to get a clue in on Jesus and it's starting to become dangerous. So that's why we start off with a death. And really the whole premise of this part is just understanding the reality of the upside-down kingdom, we call it, in in the world and what it does to people around us. Um, And we call it upside-down because Jesus takes all the power structures that we, even today live under and among, and he flips them completely upside down, meaning the CEO of the company who makes millions is actually probably the farthest person from the kingdom of God because they're consumed with wealth and they're consumed with themselves and pride. And actually, the people who are most welcomed into the into this community of believers is the poor in spirit, is those who are willing to mourn or those who are willing to see the sin and the depravity of the world, those who thirst for righteousness. And so this upside-down kingdom is, is bothering people because it's completely counterintuitive to the way they've lived life. And so we're going to see Just the ramifications of that in the presence of the world. And what better way than to see the world commit murder? And in fact, it's actually just pretty pathetic the way that it goes about. So, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to read about John the Baptist. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and because of this, miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this is really important when you're reading this section. These are the only two verses in this 12 verses that are actually in time. Matthew's typically writing chronological for the most part. And these are following the passage before that, which was just talking about the hometown and people denying him and having different opinions. And, and this is talking about the opinion of the governing authorities, which was Herod, who was the ruler at the time. But um, if we know anything about Rome and them at this time, he's like a puppet king, right? He like kind of appeases the Jewish people and the cities in his area. But ultimately, he's under Rome's fingers. So um, as, he's, as he's reading this, Matthew is going to actually take a flashback in the writing and tell us a story that we wouldn't have known had he been reading this to us, if that makes sense. So he's telling you what you didn't know in the next few verses. And so in verse 3, he brings up John the Baptist, says, For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his, brother's, his brother Philip's wife. Now, if you don't remember John, John's at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthews and some other Gospels, and uh, John the Baptist, is, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated amazing people. Uh, he doesn't have a very long story, but he was a man of simplicity, wore some weird clothes, ate some weird things, lived out in the wilderness. He baptized people by the hundreds. He, he preached the kingdom. He, he was the original preacher of repentance. The kingdom is here. That's the gospel message. And uh, he got jailed for it because he was not willing to succumb to the political values. And in this case, he was not okay with what was going on with the king, Herodias. Now, I'm going to give you just a, a recap of history here because you're probably like, Herod, Herodias, who are all these people? I've heard Herod in the early, math, in the early Matthew, when Herod tried to kill Jesus and all, killed all the babies in Bethlehem, if you remember that story. Different Herod. So that Herod is Herod Sr. That's Herod's dad. I know they're very original with their names, right? So you have Herod Senior, who owned, who who governed basically the entire land of uh, that we know in Judea and all that area, and he was an evil king. He killed hundreds of babies, of baby boys in the Bethlehem area, just because he thought Jesus could be could, could usurp his authority. So who's an infant? So he kills all these babies, right? Jesus barely gets away with Mary, and uh, he eventually dies, and his sons all fight for his. Uh, ruling authority. And so what they decide is let's just split it all up, right? Let's just divvy it all up. A good old like inheritance like anything, right? And so they split up the land. Now, I'm gonna show you a map here. Just don't stress out if you can't read everything because it's, I just, I didn't have a whiteboard up today so I figured a map would do. Uh, so this is the map of the three uh, regions. So the green, which is this giant chunk, is Archelaus. And that is the area that we, like, of no, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, those are all the prominent cities. But then, if you look up and there's blue up there and then down here, that is Antipas, which is the Herod that we're talking about right now. His real name is Antipas. He wanted to go as Herod in honor of his dad. I like to call him Herod Jr. That was not a thing back then, so don't quote me on that. But um, he but he owns, if you look, he owns basically all of, all of the uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee, which is where almost all of Jesus' ministry is done. So Jesus is doing all of his ministry in, in Antipas, Herod Jr.'s Stomping grounds. And then you have Philip, who's in the far right, which, to be honest, I feel like he got the worst of the deal, but I don't actually know the geographical layout of that. But, uh, and if you, so just keep that up there for a second. So these three brothers are all fighting. They all have their own lands. They have treaties based on the land boundaries and all that. But if you look at Antipas, why does he have that weird region in the bottom, and why is it split? And uh, the reason for that is, if you look down at the bottom right, there's a region called Nabatea. And Nabatea, the king of Nabatea, gave... Antipas, Herod, Jr., his uh, daughter, in marriage. And so in that, you know, it's like a trade, and you kind of get land for people, which is just wild. But that's how they did it back then. And so he gave him that giant chunk we know as perea. So he had two sections of land, okay? So you got it, all right? Herod, Jr. is married to the, the daughter of that region. But then all of a sudden, now Rome, like I said, they own all this. They just make these puppet kings and queens for the Jewish sake and all that. And that was their best way of subjugating a large area because Rome, like, owned all the world, basically. And so all the six of them go on a nice little, they fly in their private jet to Rome, and they have their, like, quarterly meeting, whatever, annual meeting of, like, how are things going, you know? And all six of them are there, the three brothers and their three wives, and I kid you not, Antipas starts to really like his brother Philip's wife. And all of a sudden, like any good soap opera, they do the dirties, and, and they want to marry each other. And they're both already married. And so Herod Jr. is like, well... See you later. So he divorces his wife, sends her back to Nabatea. The king of Nabatea is not happy about that. So now he's fighting for his land back, because he basically just like sent the whole reason why he gave him that land back to him. And then Philip's wife divorces him, and then she runs off and lives with Herod Antipas. And so now Philip is attacking and has at war with Antipas. I mean, like this could be a TV show, right? Am I wrong? It's amazing. I mean, this is real life. Like People are like, oh, my gosh, soap opera is like, what a crazy thing. And I'm like, they've been going on for centuries. You just got to read a history book. And you're like, well, a history books boring. And I'm like, sometimes it's not. So in this moment in the Bible, Herod has married Philip's wife. Like, she divorced him. He divorced his wife. He marries her. So he's married to his half-brother's wife, which is just not okay for a lot of reasons. But... um, the Jewish people are furious, okay? They're like, this is not okay. He's our Jewish king, right? This is not okay. And even in the progressive tribe, there's two tribes of Jewish thinking at the time. There's Halal and Shammai. And even the progressive camp, which is like, you can divorce your wife for spilling soup, bro. You can do whatever you want. You're a man. It's terrible. Uh, the other one was like, no, only for sexual morality." They're both like, this still isn't okay. Like, you can't just divorce, and then divorce, double divorce, and then just to remarry. You can't do that. And so they're all mad. And John the Baptist, of course, is not happy. And so he is publicly denouncing this. And that's what gets him thrown into prison, for good reason, right, if you think about it. Like, you're shaming your marriage, and you're the king. You're like, that's not going to fly. But he didn't kill him because he thought John had a pretty compelling message. So that's the backstory. Pretty wild, right? If it just lets you know that people have been terrible for centuries, honestly. And it gets worse. So in verse 6, Herod's birthday, Herod Jr., it's his birthday, and he's pretty drunk, because that's what they do on birthdays. Like I said, nothing's changed. Um, and uh, if you're over 21. And uh, his daughter, who this is Herodias' daughter, so was was his niece, now his daughter, dances before him, and all the people there, and pleased Herod. Now, we don't know what kind of dance. I don't think it was, like, five-year-old ballet, but I don't know if it was, you know, like, really, really overly provocative, but we're not sure. But either way, they're drunk, and he was impressed. And he basically said to her, like, he made an oath that that basically was like, hey, have whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, which at this point was half of what he had half, so really a fourth. Um, And he says, whatever you want, like, I'll give it to you. And he said this in front of everyone. And this girl... I don't even know how old she is, but she's like, I'm going to go ask my mom what I should ask for, which is really pretty wise. She goes to her mom, Herodias, and of course Herodias, what does she want? She wants John the Baptist dead, because he's been denouncing their marriage. So she comes back, and she asks him, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. Herod, the prideful, egocentric guy he is, doesn't have a choice, right? He's not going to be belittled by this little girl's request in front of all of his friends. So he orders John the Baptist to be dead, and he they behead him. They bring his head on a platter, and... Uh, That's the story of how John the Baptist dies. And if you think about it, at the end of the day, really what it was was a drunken fool making a terrible decision, and because he had power, he was able to to murder someone for it. It's pretty sad. It's actually pretty pathetic when you think about it, that someone's life could be ended like that because of just a stupid drunken mishap. Um, And those are the people who are in power. So if you thought today was bad and you were unhappy with the political climate, I don't know. This, this This is pretty bad. And John's disciples came. They take the body in verse 12, and they bury it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, uh, this is the end of story one. I'm actually going to talk about the other story today as well, because they actually tie deeply together. But uh, I I talked about this, and I built this up, because I want you to feel the experience and the weight of Jesus hearing this message. This was Jesus' cousin, okay? He was with him. He did ministry with him. He saw him be baptized. You remember the great baptism of Jesus? Pretty wild show. uh, uh, John was there. And they've grown up together, and, and then all of a sudden, you're in this situation teaching, and, and the, his disciples come to you, and they're just devastated, and they're like, hey, John is dead. His head was cut off. Uh, and they tell the story, right? And so Matthew tells you that, and now he zooms back out. Like, he showed you the flashback, he explained the story, and now we're back to verse thir- 13. And it says this in the next story. Now, when Jesus heard this, he went away from there privately in a boat to an isolated place. Uh, Most of us, just like I said, we're simple people. We read, oh, I see a subheading. I'll read there down, right? And you would have read that and just thought, oh, we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000, but you maybe wouldn't realize the entire context of why he was running away. He was running away because he was devastated, because he was grieving, because he's, remember, he's fully human. And I don't know about you, but if you found out news, anything like that, even just like your your uncle or your cousin died in a car accident, like, you're just not going to be okay. And... Jesus takes that that message, he internalizes it, and he's like, you know, I just need I need some lawn time, you know, which for good reason, right? And I also think there's more than just, hey, someone in your family died. It's hey, the guy the ruler of the authorities who has the power to kill you is is like he's on to you, right? Like he just killed the guy who was your forerunner of your message. And so now you got to play things a little bit like safer. you got to be a little bit more under the radar. And, and you're also... I think Jesus is reminded of the weight of where he's going, right? He knows where he's going, and he knows the weight of it. And these are the small pieces of grief that he experiences on the way that he is still just human and has to, like, deal with. So he's on the way to an isolated place. The disciples, they all got on the boat with him, and they, they, they were off. And they're like, all right, let's, like, find a good secluded place in the Sea of Galilee. And they, they find this little pocket and they get pretty excited about it, and then they get up to the shore, and there are thousands of people there, which I don't even know. I've read a lot of different commentaries on like, how thousands of people just showed up on the side of, a, on the, side of a, the shore. Maybe they could see the boat from far away, and they all ran and followed him. There might have been people in that area in general, and they, they knew that was Jesus, and they all flocked. And maybe they, Who knows, right? But there's thousands of people. We know there's more than 5,000, because that was just men, so there's literally thousands and thousands of people. If you think about the Crew Stadium, that fits about 20,000 people. There's probably close to ten to 15,000 there. So, I mean, that's a lot of people. Imagine you just found out your cousin got in a car accident, and they want you to go out on stage and sing the National Anthem in front of everyone, right? I mean, that's pretty brutal. And that's, like, easy, because the National Anthem, you know the words. You're not, like, teaching people the way of life, you know? <laughs> And, you know, they're probably like, oh, shoot. It's funny. I'm like, why didn't they, like, oh, turn around, let's row away? They just, I guess they just were like, well, we're here. I guess we'll pull over. And they get there, and verse 13b, the second half, uh, when the crowd heard about it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So, like I said, I don't know how they knew. They, maybe they could see the boat. I don't know how they found him, but they, uh, they did. And as he got out, he saw the large crowd. And I don't know about you, like in this moment, like if you're Jesus, like and you see this large crowd, like I like said, I would just get back in the boat and peace out. I'd be like, guys, maybe tomorrow, all right? I was thinking about this, how like what is this feeling that I would feel that I think I would embody if I was Jesus, if Trey was Jesus in this moment. And the best way to describe it is I have a long day at work, I'm exhausted, I've had a lot of hard emotional conversations, and I come home and I'm like about I'm about home for 15 minutes, all the kids are crying, Sarah's just like had a rough day, and then all of a sudden I hear a knock on the door, and sure enough, it's a solar panel guy. You know, and, he, and if you, I'm sorry if you sell solar panels, but it's just bad timing for me. And I'm like, I don't want your solar panels. We live in Columbus. It's always cloudy. They don't work, okay? I'm just kidding. They do work. I lived in Arizona. They're very great. But I don't want them in that moment, okay? If you're knocking on my door. Maybe you just, like, came to give me us free food. I'd still just be like, God, get out of here, just for, like, give me an hour. And I, I mean, that's, like, pathetic compared to what he's experiencing, but that was the closest I could conjure up. It's like... I don't want to be around people right now for your sake and for my sake and probably our kids' sake. And Jesus, what does he do in verse 14? He sees the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick, which is probably by the hundreds because the people wanting to follow Jesus are pretty desperate and they're most likely sick. Their bodies don't work, they're poor, whatever it may be. He's healing hundreds of people. Now, this is just who Jesus is, right? Like he's just such a better person than us. Who doesn't like this guy, you know? He would talk to the solar panel guy for two hours and maybe he'd buy solar panels, I don't know, but he'd be very nice to that guy. And I was not I would not be. And I just think that Jesus, it's like he has this unending well of love and compassion. He just does. And it's a beautiful thing to see in the midst of all of this hardship that he experienced. And, and, and it's only going to get better. Okay? It's only going to get better. Verse 15, when evening has arrived, he's there all day healing sick people and, and whatever. His disciples came to him saying, this is an isolated place and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, we, you know, scholars argue about, like are they, are they trying to get rid of people or are they actually seeing the people and, and realizing a need? I would argue it's that. They are, they're, when you're around Jesus long enough, he's contagious. Like, he makes you a better person. And these disciples start to make the right decisions and ask the right questions. And in this moment, they do pretty good. And they're like, hey, like, all these people, like, they don't, you know, like, they're not going to be able to eat. We got to do something. And Jesus is like, nice job. Like, look at you guys, thinking about other people other than yourselves. That's amazing. And so they come up with this idea. What does Jesus say? It's actually kind of peculiar. He says, nah, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. And, of course, they're like, we're not you. What are we going to do? We're out in the middle of nowhere, like, we're, we're average fishermen. That's why we're with you. Like, we weren't good. It wasn't lucrative business, you know. And, and He's like, you give him something to eat. And they said, well, we got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them here to me. He instructed the crowds to sit down in the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. Your translation might say he gave blessing to the crowds They all ate and were satisfied. They picked up the broken pieces left over, 12 baskets full. Not counting women and men, there were 5,000 men who ate. And then reading a little bit farther, I'll get to this next week, but immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, sent them off ahead of him while he dispersed the crowds. And then after he sent the crowds away, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. He finally got his... His alone time, his solitude, his silence, that he needed his prayer, most likely with the Father. But it, not before this massive miracle that we read about. And the story's staggering when you put it all together and you think about the depravity that he had seen and experienced and heard about before the situation. And then he has this heart of compassion. And then the disciples kind of like, hey, we need to do something about this. And he's continually working Um, I've used this illustration before, but if you've ever watched The Chosen, there's this episode that I think is just incredibly powerful where uh, they're all just sitting around the fire talking about Jesus, and he had just been healing people all day, like all day. And he's got, like, blood on him from people and, like, all this stuff. And they're all, like, talking about him and kind of being, like, like joking and laughing. And he comes by. At the end of the day, it's, like, dark. And he's just, like, exhausted. He just worked, like, 14 hours straight. He's just exhausted. And he goes and he just wants to, like, sleep. You know, and his mom tends to him, and I think in that moment what I really loved about it and really like realized it's like this isn't like easy stuff. Like it's not like he just like stood there and was like pew, 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 like shooting like lasers of healing at people. You know, he was like dealing with intimate, close, broken people all day, dealing with this internal trauma, and and I think that furthermore he has his disciples all looking to his lead of like what are we gonna do here, and he says, look, I'm like. I have done enough and I'm doing a lot. You handle this. And I just think that's such a cool calling for us is there's moments where I feel like God just like, look, like like I'm here, I've equipped you, go do it. You see a need, go meet it. Go meet it. And so the process of this and how it occurs, this meal that we read about that we often miss, I want to run through it one more time and I want us to just think about it in a bit of a different perspective. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and he, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, and he gave it to them the disciples. Now, if you read that verse specifically, you might think in this phrase, gave thanks, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, that you might be like, that sounds familiar. Well, it, ha- it does occur again in Matthew in chapter 26. If you look, almost the exact same verbiage is in Matthew 26. He took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and except this time he said, this is my body. Now, remember, Matthew is writing out this entire gospel account, right? Like, and who knows? Maybe he wrote one section, and then wrote another section, and then he pieced it all together. But we know it was mostly chronological, so he most likely, in a lot of ways, was writing it like this, right? And he'd been telling these stories for decades, right? He didn't write it until maybe 70 to 90 AD, which is several decades after Jesus, right? He was an old man. And what I find fascinating about these two pieces is that he almost put them together. It was like in his brain, like the breaking of bread was synonymous with the Last Supper, which is synonymous with the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us on the cross. So he, really, his, his body broke. like His body was killed and died for us, for our sins. And he uses the same language and verbiage in both because if you really read it, what is going on in the feeding of the 5,000? Matthew is reminding us there must be sacrifice in order for, for healing, for miracle, for for things to happen. I mean, that's just, that's like point blank the gospel, right? Something must die in order for us to be made right because we can't make ourselves right on our own. Our sin is blemishing our righteousness, and unfortunately, we don't have the ability to just be perfect people. In fact, if you, if you think you can, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and you try and follow all those things, and you let me know how that goes. And so Jesus is is... In the same way, illustrating he does this, he'll do these things where he does it and then they remember it later and they're like, oh my gosh, it clicks. Matthew's like, yes, yes, yes. Broke the bread in front of everyone and gave thanks, right, for the breaking the sacrifice and it it, it just fed thousands of people. Now think about this. Whose food was that? It was the disciples and it was just, it was a snack, okay? It was five five loaves of bread and two fish. These aren't like Arctic char, okay? They're little, like tiny fish, okay? It's a snack for 12 people, Okay? And it's their snack they brought because they knew they were, like, going to go out, right? So they are willingly sacrificing all that they have. And they're giving it over to Jesus, and they're trusting that Jesus is going to do something with it. Because you're like, okay, this will feed, like, a half a boy, right? There's 5,000 people here. And they give it over to him. They give over even the most piddly of resources, and he takes it, and remember, he's always like him and the Father are one. He, he thanks the Father, right, for what has been given. He, he sacrifices. He breaks the bread. He's a reminder of, like, I am that sacrifice, and then I'm going to give it to you to do something with. So what does Jesus do? Think, look, at the, look at the verbiage he says. You don't, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. Great idea. You do it. And so they said to him, we only have these fish. And, you know, and, and I think about, like, how many excuses do we have, right? Oh, well, I don't have a master's. Oh, I'm not very charismatic. I'm introverted. I'm not good. Oh, I, I'm going to say something stupid. Oh, I don't, I don't know the person and the questions they have. I don't have the right answers to. I'm, I'm too discouraged. I, I surely couldn't share the gospel with this person. I surely couldn't serve these people. I don't understand them, or I'm not like them, or I've never lived a life like that, or whatever. It may Maybe right? you have these excuses where you think your experience or your life or your intellect or your identity is piddly. and it doesn't have the ability to make any sort of difference in someone's life. And so, the, the devil wins. He just kept, keeps you in your fear. And, and you're not able to remember that even the most piddly of things can multiply to change thousands of people's lives. That it is the nourishment that people give. And it's not, it is theirs, right? But it's not multiplied until it's given to Jesus, right? The things that you have need to be given over to Jesus. They need to be surrendered and say, hey, here's what I got. Five dollars, five million. Here's what I got. Lord, like, just, can, you, can you take it? Okay, I'm willing to sacrifice it. Can you give it before the Lord and, and let's see what happens? And so then what he does... He says, bring them here to me. He he blesses them, right? Breaks them, and then does Jesus go feed everyone? Does he create a line? Does he like throw it up in the sky? No, he has everybody sit down in small groups, which they're probably like, well, this is interesting, and they sit down in groups like 50 or whatever, and then he has the disciples go and and, and, and administer the food to everybody. And I don't, we don't know exactly how the miracle happened. Okay, it was, it could have been like they carried the basket and like, oh, that's a half a loaf and a fish, and then they turn around and like, whoa, we don't know, or it was like. Jesus gave him it, and he multiplied it, and then they took it, and then it was empty, they went back, and then Jesus just, like, made another, and you're just like, oh, gosh, okay, all right, wow. Like, we don't know, okay? We don't know exactly if he just, like, made it rain right there, tons of food, or if he kept bringing it up, right? We know that in the Old Testament, it's synonymous with Moses feeding people, because he is the new Moses, and Moses, in that instance, it was a similar thing, where it was sort of like, it only would come when you really needed it, so I imagine that in this instance, it was like, you take a basket to a group, you feed all of them, and you're like, wow, and then you walk back, and then Jesus is like, here's some more. And you're like, what is happening? And <laughs> you go to another group. And I just, I like to think, and like I said, I'm not, this is not for sure, but I like to think that the disciples after about two baskets are like, this guy. What a guy. We're such idiots. Like, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, and then what's crazy and what spiritually just should punch you in the face is that he didn't just feed everybody. He had tons of leftovers. It wasn't just enough. It was more than enough more than enough for probably 12,000 people. And I just think every time you walk back, you think, well, surely he's got to be out, right? I mean, it's five fish. I don't even know how I just fed those 50. And then you come back, and you're like, there's more. I just think about, are there people in your life that you're terrified to just to share Jesus with or to love well and you do that, and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, their friend comes. And then oh, your other friend comes out of the woodworks, and they're having a rough time. And, and all of a sudden, before you know it, God has given you far too many people to love on. And you're just like, Lord, but you, you know what? Lord was faithful in this relationship, so I know he's got to be faithful in this relationship, right? And th- that is gospel multiplication, but it always starts with a small, piddly amount of resources that God chooses to take from you, and he will multiply. And I think in our lives... When we when we really think about this, like th- there is nothing significant these disciples had other than the willingness to trust Jesus in this moment. And I just like if you just take a nice bow on it, and I want to I want to um, invite up uh, Nick for this because I wanted to take communion, uh, in, as a reminder of this, is is that like they're not doing this. Uh, out of their own accord, right? There is a sense of abiding or, or leaning into or remaining in Jesus so that he can provide for them. And I just want to remind you that this is the essence of communion, that we take we take every Sunday, um, mm-hmm. that we, we do that because as often as we should meet, we should gather and take it. And, and we take it because we are reminded that Jesus broke his body for us. And it is not this thing that we just think about. It's It's a daily reminder that in the same way that Jesus broke his body for us, that we break the things that we have, we sacrifice so that Jesus can take that and use it. And so communion is not only a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, but it's it's in essence a reminder and a preparing of calling us what we are to do. So we're going to just give a little bit of time just for communion specifically. Um, And so David, if you want to move that up here, we're going to have one in the back and one in the front. All of it is gluten-free, so you're good on that. Um, We're going to have just a couple minutes of instrumental. And I encourage you, if you believe in Jesus, or this is your first time you believe in Jesus, I encourage you to come up here and partake in it. And as you reflect on it, as you take it in your seat uh, alone or with someone, that you remind yourself that, like, Jesus broke his body for your behalf. And it had to happen, right? There are hungry, broken people, and it had to happen so that we might be made right with God. So I'll encourage you in the next two or three minutes to take communion, and then I'm going to come up and close. So I just want to spend just a minute just kind of shifting, and I mean, it's a lot, there's a lot today to think about, you know, you have this crazy death uh, because of just evil in the world that exists, and it's still there today, and affects us, and sometimes we are casualties of just um, it having nothing to do with us, right, and uh, it's the world we don't want to live in, and it's frustrating. And, and and, uh, and so when we think about this upside-down kingdom in the life, that the kingdom is a reality in our lives around us, that we can be a part of ushering that in through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, that I wanted us to just take a moment and reflect on that in this last song. And um, I think when we think about this story, I love the, the trajectory of it because it is not go give things to people and fix the world and make it a better place on your own. And I think sometimes we fall guilty of that where we feel like either we're going to do that on our own or we're going to do it so that God will love us. And this story is a reminder that it is always out of the love that Jesus first has for us that causes us to do any of those things. And so some of us have, have been in the, the tension and the throes of relationship with Jesus and what that looks like. And even like in Eric's story, like there's times where it's like really great and really good and there's times where you question it because you're like, oh my gosh, is this truly unconditional or is it contingent on the things that I do or the things that I don't do? And in this story, it's a reminder that when we truly understand the sacrifice that Jesus has given for us, because of that, we realize that our entire life is a sacrifice for others. And even the smallest amount of resources that we have, the five loaves and the two fish, is more than enough. And when they're giving it back at the end, it's more than they even had at the beginning. And so I just want to encourage you in this next song. I want to invite the band up right now. Um, as we sing, we're going to sing Holy Spirit because we're just welcoming in the Spirit's presence to remind us that it is not, you don't just walk out the door and you just do more things and be a better person, okay? We believe that the Spirit is, is doing a work in our hearts and is working with us, co-laboring with us to see the kingdom become a reality in people's lives. And so during this time, you're welcome to stand and sing. Uh, it's our last song, but I would also encourage you, we have people in the back who would love to pray for you, would love to pray specifically for that for you, as you wrestle through, am I willing to give it all up for Jesus? Or I, I, I said I did, I believe that, but I'm struggling. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing some spiritual warfare. I'm experiencing apathy or complacency. Or maybe there's an idol or a sin in your life that you're just not finding freedom in and you want to find freedom in that. I would like more than encourage you go back there and have people petition for you through the power of the Spirit. And then we'll close uh, today. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.